Welcome back, all you Bible readers out there. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 10. This week we'll be covering Deuteronomy chapter 10 through Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 47. And so as we left off last week, we left off with Deuteronomy chapter 9, in which we were highlighting Israel's stubborn nature. And God reminded Israel that God was giving the promised land to them, not because they were somehow good, but because of his promise to the patriarchs years earlier. And so in this chapter, as we continue, we find that Israel continues her stubborn ways with the infamous golden calf scene that's recounted by Moses here in this chapter. Israel had indeed broken the covenant at Sinai, but because of Moses' intercession for them, God renews his covenant with them. And so in chapter 10, the act of grace here is God inscribing another set of the Ten Commandments. And God also shows grace to the people by the construction of the ark that would atone for the sins of the people. More grace is also shown by the appointment of the high priest who would carry out this atonement. And even more grace is shown with the setting apart of the tribe of Levi that would help the Israelites in their proper obedience to the law. Now, while some would see all these rules and regulations as bad, what we should see is grace all over these pages. Grace in that God makes a way for the people to be in relationship with him, even though they don't deserve it. Because of what God has done for Israel, they needed to respond. And so Moses summarizes Israel's responsibility to revere, to love, and to wholeheartedly obey the Lord. And so the rationale is simple. God had demonstrated love for Israel, and so Israel was to demonstrate love for God. Now, allow me to highlight one phrase in chapter 10. Verse 21, I'm reading from the New King James, and I love this phrase. It says, He is your praise. That's an interesting phrase. And can we say that about God? He is our praise. You think about all that God did for the nation of Israel. And many times they did not praise him. Many times they were not thankful. But I love that phrase there where it says, He is your praise. That's kind of the way we should view our relationship with God as well. Now we move into chapter 11. And chapter 11 develops the requirements of love for God in a more full nature. God's acts toward Israel have been in love. They have been acts of discipline, not acts of punishment. If the people love and obey God then he will help them greatly by possessing the land, by enabling to, them to live long lives in the land, by caring for the land, providing for it with rain, by expelling the inhabitants of the land. God will do all these things for them if they are simply loyal and obedient to him. However, Moses, Moses makes it clear that the choice is up to them. If they listen and obey, then blessing awaits. But if they ignore and disobey, then cursing awaits. With the close of chapter 11, the larger section of general laws and principles are complete. Remember that we talked earlier and we said that chapters 5 through 11 are general laws and principles that would guide Israel, not just when she is in the land, but in all her life. Now as we move into chapter 12, which begins the larger section of chapters 12 through 26, it's a section dedicated to the exposition or the further elaboration of selected laws. And the way the section flows is from religious laws to civil laws and then to laws governing personal life. Now what's even more amazing is that this section of chapters 12 through 26 can be charted to flow with the Ten Commandments. And by this I mean commandment number one is further elaborated on in chapters 12. 
Commandment number two is further elaborated on in chapters 13 and 14. Commandment number three is further elaborated on in chapters 14, 15, 16. So you see the point here. This larger section of chapters 12 through 26 is a further systematic exposition of the Ten Commandments. And so the big picture here, what the text is telling us, it's screaming at us, is that the moral laws, the Ten Commandments, are the basic commands from which all the other commands would come from. Therefore, while not covering every detail, these laws are what the people needed to remember as they moved into the conquest of the land. So you can see how vital understanding these Ten Commandments are, and Moses expounds further laws and regulations upon those Ten Commandments in this larger section of chapters 12 through 26. All right, so let's start with chapter 12. Chapter 12 are laws arising from the first commandment, which the first commandment says, You shall have no other gods before me. And so the Israelites were to worship Yahweh exclusively, and when they entered the land, they were to destroy all the places and objects used in the pagan worship by the Canaanites. The central tabernacle is the only place where Israel was to worship God. However, we know that later on in Israel's history, she breaks this law and worships, worships God at various, quote, high places. And when you come across that term high places in scripture, and you will later on, think of the pagan altars that were constructed on high mountains because the Canaanites viewed their false gods as being above them. That's why they are called high places. And when you get into the kings, you find some of the kings that are tearing down those high places. It's a form of worship to the false gods. And in addition, offerings made to the Lord must be slaughtered in designated sacred places. But the slaughter of food could be done anywhere, provided the blood was properly disposed of. Along with sacrificial animals, all, all other kinds of offerings must be taken to places chosen by the Lord for his worship. And also, as a part of this, the Israelites were not to investigate the pagan religious practices of their Canaanites, or else they might be tempted to worship their gods. So all of that in chapter 12 is really a further explanation of commandment number one. As you move into chapter 13, you find laws arising from the second commandment, which says you shall not make for yourself an image of any likeness for the purpose of worshiping it. False gods imply that there will be false prophets as spokesmen for these gods. Moses noted that even within Israel, false prophets would arise and the need to deal with them quickly was commanded. First, the test of a false prophet was their fidelity to the Mosaic Covenant. If he led the people away from God, the civil authorities were to put him to death. Second, it was not just religious leaders who suffered for the crime of being a false prophet. The civil authorities were to execute any Israelite who sought to lead others into idolatry. Capital punishment was set forth as a punishment for this crime. Third, an entire town could be punished for leading others into idolatry. The closest example of this event ever happening is in the book of Judges in chapter 20 in the case of Gibeah, a city of Benjamin. So in a similar way for us today, we are to separate ourselves from false teachers, from those who would lead us into the worship of another god. I hope we would think we would understand that as a basic principle of worshiping the one and only God. Now you move into chapter 14, you find laws arising from the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now I've grown up believing that this command was using the name of God in vain, using his name as a cuss word, we might say. And I'm not discounting that interpretation. Using the Lord's name in that fashion should never be done. 
This was typical of ancient Near Eastern society, sorcery and incantation, where the names of gods were invoked as part of an act of conjuring up these false gods. But what I am saying is that we might be missing the fuller meaning. The Hebrew word that's used to translate the English word take can also be rendered as lift up, to bear or to carry, or to take or to take away. Now, it's obvious that the translators have used the last definition and translated the phrase as take the name of the Lord in vain. But what of the other two suggestions? Could we not say, do not lift up, do not bear, do not carry the name of the Lord in vain? You know, before you even come to the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, you have to come to Exodus chapter 19 first. When Israel first arrived at Sinai, God bestows titles on his people like treasured possession, kingdom of priests, a holy nation. This was Israel's vocation, her job as it were. The thing that she was born to do is to represent their God to the rest of humanity and to represent him well. A few chapters later in Exodus 28, the high priest, quote, bears or carries the names of the sons of Israel as he moves in and out of the tabernacle. That's Exodus 28, 29. The high priest is a visual model of the vocation for the entire nation of Israel. And just as the high priest represents God to Israel, so they, Israel, represent God to the nations. Israel has a calling to bear God's name among the nations, which means to represent him well. And so to bear his name in vain would be to enter into this covenant relationship with him, but to live no differently than the surrounding pagan nations. Now, as you move back to chapter 14 of Deuteronomy, if the third commandment was about using the Lord's name for cussing or in vain or idolatrous worship of other gods, why doesn't chapter 14 discuss those matters? You know that chapter 14 is about, you know what it's about? Chapter 14 is about eating. (laughs) The word shows up 15 times in this chapter alone. You see, the diet of the Canaanites had connections with their false worship just like the Diet of Israel had connections with the worship of their God. So what's the connection? Well, if Israel was to bear the name of the Lord well to the other nations, then even what she ate was important. In New Testament teaching, we are to carefully consider our actions and associations. Paul says that we are free to do certain things, but doing those certain things would not represent Christ well to those who see us and to those who we influence. I wish I had more time to unpack this command, but I hope you see my point that there's much more to this third command than what's on the surface. Well, we need to finish up chapter 14 because chapter 14, verse 22, starts further discussion concerning the fourth commandment about the Sabbath. And the reason for observing the Sabbath day was God's redemption of Israel from bondage in Egypt. In gratitude of this, Israel was to bring offering to the Lord. There was a yearly tithe, And there was a three-year tithe in Israel. Care was to be given to the Levite, the foreigner, the foreigner, excuse me, the orphan, and the widows. Other individuals in the nation who were in need were also to be cared for, as chapter 15 specifies. And as a sign of appreciation for the Lord's redemption and release of his people from Egypt would be their willingness to release from debt fellow Israelites. And so every seventh year was a year of release in which all debts must be canceled. Because God values each person equally as an individual. This perspective comes out clearly in this section where God instructs his people to show concern for the welfare of every individual, regardless of his or her economic or social position. 
Also in chapter 15, Israelites were to set aside firstborn oxen and sheep for God as sacrifices because God has blessed the herd or flock with fertility. The Israelites were to offer God as near a perfect specimen as possible. This taught them that God deserves the very best, which would have cost them the most. Just as Israel was to set apart the Sabbath, so also Israel was to set apart special days for celebration. The Passover, the Feast of First Fruits, and the Feast of Tabernacles are mentioned in this chapter, chapter 16, because these three events or celebrations were the required ones for all males to attend each year. Now, chapter 16, verse 18 begins further explanation on the fifth commandment. And the fifth commandment says, honor your father and your mother. So it makes sense then that this section would be about respecting authority figures in the nation. And so chapters 16, verse 18 through 17, uh, verse 13, deals with judges and similar officials, stressing how these authority figures were to carry out punishments of crimes and how they were to interpret matters of the law that were not black and white. And there were some general guidelines, but the overriding principle here is justice. In fact, from a bigger picture, Deuteronomy is passionately concerned with justice, especially as it relates to justice towards your brother. Kings as authority figures are discovered there kind of in the middle of chapter 17. And Moses foresees that when the people are settled in the land, they will cry out for a king to rule over them like the other nations have. Ideally, Moses was concerned about abuse of power and setting a bad example. And so a good king would do the opposite. He would not abuse his power and he would be the model Israelite to the people he served. And then there's one more group there of authority figures. They are the priests, the Levites, and the prophets, all three that are spoken of there in chapter 18. The priests served as the authority figure in relations to the offerings and sacrifices. The Levites assisted the priests in the tabernacle functions. But not all of those Levites did this. Some Levites simply lived in their assigned Levitical cities and served as an authority there in religious matters for that particular city. Then the last group was the prophets. And the conception of prophets was already something that the surrounding cultures were practicing. However, those practices were towards a false god and not the one true god. And we know that the Lord would raise up an order of the prophets like Moses, a spokesman for God um, who was called by God and empowered by him. And later on, we will read about men like Samuel, Elijah, and Elisha. Ultimately, the prophet par excellence would show up on the scene, and you know him as Jesus. Chapters 19 through 22, verse 8, we have laws arising from the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Now, the first half of chapter 19 talks about manslaughter or involuntary murder. We've already mentioned this earlier when speaking about the cities of refuge, but it is here mentioned again for the new generation. The second half of chapter 19 is about witnesses, particularly witnesses that give testimony in cases of murder. So there was a process that the judge was supposed to follow to ensure that witnesses were speaking truthfully and speaking correctly at all times. And also, there's a little small blurb here in verse 14 about property rights. Now, why is that here, you might ask? Well, we're told that a common cause of hostility between people that often lead to murder was a respect for a person's property rights. Boundaries during this time were usually marked by stones several feet high. In fact, in later Roman culture, a person could be executed for moving boundary markers. The significance here is that God was the one who determined the boundary markers and the owners of the land. And this issue is still a red-hot one today in the nation of Israel. How many times has reporters changed or shifted in the past generations? Even in our country today, property rights is a big deal. But even today, personal conflict 
is one of the leading causes of murder and arguing over property rights is definitely something that can lead to a conflict. Chapter 20 addresses the topic of war, and this section provided a manual for warfare outlining their attitude and approach towards national enemies. Ideally, God's purpose was to use only the best soldiers, those who were confident of God's promise of victory and who personally had little distractions from family matters. Israel did not need a large army since God would fight for her. Then you move into chapter 21, and that speaks about unsolved murders and what must happen as a result of that. Cities were responsible for murders committed within their jurisdictions, and this indicates that there is a corporate guilt in God's government. And the ritual prescribed in the first part of chapter 21 removed the pollution that was caused by the bloodshed. And that ritual removed the impurity that would rest upon the people um, of that city for not finding the murderer. And the rest of chapter 21 deals with some authority rights, uh, especially as it relates to inheritance that might arise if a man decides to take a wife who was obtained as a prisoner of war. Also, this chapter speaks about the rebellious nature of children and the extreme consequences for a child who was judged in this fashion. Now, one author best sums up this point with these words, and I quote, The severity of the punishment outweighs, appears to outweigh the crime, but we must recognize that parental sovereignty was at stake. Were insubordination of children toward their parents to have been tolerated, there would have been but a short step towards the insubordination of all of the Lord's servants to him, the king of kings. Now, this was the last resort for parents. This law withheld the right of a parent to slay their children for rebelliousness, while at the same time preserving parental authority fully. Now, I don't think today we're going to take our children before the church and stone them because of their rebellion. You have to understand the principle here. The principle here for us today is that we as parents should be involved in our children's lives in any ways and all ways that we can. But at the same time, we should never put our love for our children above our love for our God. And the rest of this chapter in the first part of chapter 22 continues with additional regulations concerning preservation of life. The reverse side of taking life is preserving it. In the second half of chapter 22, verse 9 begins to address laws arising from the seventh commandment. You should not commit adultery. As you read this section related to adultery, think also of spiritual adultery and not just physical adultery. Many times we are guilty of spiritual adultery, cheating on God with other false gods. Now the first few verses, verses 9 through 12, might seem odd as they speak about not mixing seeds, not mixing animals and yoke, and fibers and clothing. But adultery involves the mixing of people in a way that they should not mix. The principle taught the Israelites the importance of purity and keeping things distinct. And the rest of chapter 22 deals with marriage relationships. And there are seven different cases listed. And God designed these laws to stress the importance of monogamy in a, uh, in a society where taking multiple wives w- was the norm. Now, if chapter 22 is about proper types of marital unions, then chapter 23 is about the unions of individuals within the covenant community. You see, chapter 23 deals with people that wanted to worship within the nation of Israel, but they were not born in Israel. They were not Jewish. Be careful not to, or be careful to note the word assembly, deals with the official gatherings of God's people for festival occasions and for other specified times of worship. This doesn't mean that these people could not have relationships with the Israelites. Maybe a good parallel would be for us today when we observe the Lord's Supper. 
Only a saved person is allowed to participate. The unsaved person cannot. However, that does not mean that we are to have no contact with them at all. There are more regulations related to keeping the Israelites from prostituting themselves to the other nations as they entered the land, and this is easily distinguished as spiritual adultery. Now chapters 23 verse 19 through 24 7 are laws arising from the 8th commandment, you shall not steal. And all of these laws in this section have some connection with respecting the possessions and or rights of others. Chapter 24 verse 8 through chapter 25 verse 19 are laws arising from the 9th commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The reason for bearing false witness or lying um, can often have malicious intent or cause harm to a person. And that seems to be the operating principle in this section. This section seems to go from the most important offended parties to the least important parties. It starts with the leaders, then to the creditors, then to the citizens, then to the foreigners or the immigrants, and then to the criminals, and finally to the animals. Chapter 25, verse 5 through verse 19 deal with laws arising from the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. And the four laws here deal with desire or intention as opposed to the actual deed. And as you move into chapter 26, the opposite of coveting something is giving thanks and showing gratitude. And this is what God's people were to do when they entered the land. The first celebration that was required was the presentation of first fruits to the Lord. It was to be an expression of gratitude to God for fulfilling his promise to bring them into the land. The second celebration would occur in the third year in which they occupied the land. This was the tithe offering, an offering designed for the relief of the poor. An Israelite at the end of each third year, whatever he had left over or whatever excess was stored up, he brought it to the Lord and it was used to help the poor. Again, this practice was tied to the principle of not coveting things. It reminds me of Jesus' words that say, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now, with the end of chapter 26, we conclude the larger section. That was chapters 12 through 26. And we have moved through these chapters and have shown how the material is systematically attached and tied back to the Ten Commandments. But as you move into chapters 27 and 28, we find that covenants have no value if there is no inducement to abide by their conditions. Therefore, a listing of blessings and cursings are provided in these chapters. Chapters 29 through 30 provide a historical review for the nation. Moses reviews the past, pushed the people to obey, and pointed to the future with all the problems that might come up if they don't obey. And ultimately, the choice was up to them. They could obey or disobey. Moses wants to make the clear implications for both choices. And chapter 31 deals with the duties of Israel's future leaders. Especially here specific is Joshua, who was chosen as a replacement for Moses, and now he is officially commissioned as Moses' successor. Moses also charges the priests with the care and keeping of the law in this chapter. Now, you get into chapter 32, and the larger section of chapter 32 contains what we know as the Song of Moses. And this is a poem that contrasts the faithfulness and loyal love of God with the unfaithfulness and perversity of his people. The lesson that this song teaches is that when God's people forget his gracious goodness to them and turn away from him to follow idols, they can, accept, can expect discipline. And that's exactly what happens as they get into the land. That discipline would come. Moses seems, it seems he knew this all too well. He knew the people very well. 
By the way, as a side point of American history, did you know that verse 35 of Deuteronomy 32 was the subject of the famous Jonathan Edwards sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? If you didn't know it, go look it up. It's an interesting story. Well, unfortunately, our time is gone, and we've got as far as we need to cover for this week. We will finish up Deuteronomy next week. We'll begin talking about the death of Moses, and we'll get into the book of Joshua, well into the book of Joshua, all the way through chapter 20, I believe. Email me any questions that you might have at BibleReading at LMBC.org, and I will talk with you all next week.